If you have your Bibles, be finding Psalm 110. We're looking at Psalm 110 for a couple of weeks. We started last week by looking at primarily the first verse. And you might wonder why Psalm 110 is important to us. But I mentioned this last week that it is the passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. So the New Testament writers loved it. And I just came across a book this past week by David Hay from Yale. And he says that in a pretty exhaustive study of the text, he found 33 references in the New Testament to verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 110. So it is quoted again and again. And it's also quoted by the uh, early church, the church fathers, not just the writers of the New Testament, but those who wrote outside the Bible and about the Bible. So it's it's a very popular first century, second century passage of Scripture. Let me read this first verse again. The Lord said to my Lord, and we pointed out to you that the first word Lord is all capitalized, should be in your Bibles. That's the Hebrew word Jehovah. And that the second word Lord has small letters, L-O-R-D, and that's the Hebrew word Adonai. And that this is evidently God the Father speaking to God the Son. Jehovah said to Adonai, sit at my right hand till all your enemies are at your feet. And so this is quoted again and again, and it has to do with the enthronement of Christ, the ascension of Christ. Did you all know that there's actually an ascension Sunday? Uh, Just to show you how we have neglected this theme in our day, a lot of people don't even know that. We celebrate Christmas, which is when Christ was born. We celebrate Good Friday, which is when Christ was crucified. We celebrate Easter Sunday, which is when Christ rose again. But there's also Ascension Sunday, 40 days after Easter. And, but it shows you, and, and I'm to blame as much as anybody here because that should be our role to emphasize this. It shows you, though, how the church has neglected what, uh, in our day, what the first century church emphasized. And that is not just Christ on the cross, Christ up from the grave, but Christ enthroned Christ ascended, Christ as King, and Christ as Lord over everything. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So I wanted to bring some emphasis to this today, uh, these uh, last couple of Sundays, 
let me just show you two or three verses where this uh, first verse of Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament. Give you an idea of it. Romans 8, 33, Paul says, Who will bring any charge or accusation against God's elect? It is God that justifies us. So who will condemn us? Christ Jesus, he's the one who died for us. And more than that, he was raised and is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's praying for us. He presents his righteousness before the Father on our behalf. Or listen to Paul in Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Seek those things. Put your emphasis there, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Or Hebrews 10.11. In the Old Testament, every priest would stand every day repeatedly offering the same sacrifices. And they could never take away sins. By the way, you know why he knows they could never take away sins? Because he had to keep repeating them. He had to keep on making the same sacrifices. But he says they were still there because the next day you'd have to do the same thing again. So he says, But when Christ offered for all time himself single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down. What do you do when you're sitting down? You're done. You're finished. You've completed the work. So this, is, this text is used to point out Christ's finished work and how distinct it is from the old covenant age where the priest would continually sacrifice for sins. And so Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. This is the place of power. This is the place of influence. This is the place where you, the, the one in, in position of authority can turn his uh, power over to. I uh, uh, came across this quote this week. Uh, in 1863, during the Civil War, you, you've heard of Stonewall Jackson, General Stonewall Jackson. He was shot in the left arm by the Union Army, and he was taken to a hospital where they had to amputate his arm. Complications set in, though, and he died in a few days. Robert E. Lee, the general of the Confederate Army, said, Well, he, Jackson, lost his left arm, but I lost my right arm. Because he was such a good soldier. And he called him his right arm. And ultimately, Lee did lose the war. But the proof is going to be found that Christ is at the right hand, that, that Jesus has all authority. Look at the proof of it in Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. You remember that from last week? That the, the evidence that Jesus is at the right hand of God is the voluntary giving of ourselves to him and his work. Your people, verse 3, in light of your lordship and your position at the right hand of God, we now offer ourselves. And I was thinking about this today when, with the band 
up here and the time that they put in and Dave and Connie and our leaders and our and now we're going to have discipleship groups and a thing of the children's workers and nursery workers. Why do they do this? They don't get paid. They do it because there is in their heart an inclination to please the living Lord who is at the right hand of God. That he, they sense that He is leading them and they are freely offering. By the way, I wanted to tell you all, we were figuring up how much that we received last year for our uh, new children's building that we're planning. And uh, it looks like that in about a five-month time span, we took in about $64,000. So that was freely given over above our regular offerings last year to put up our children's building. And you all who have been here, you know there was not a lot of pressure on that. And there hasn't been the last few weeks. Uh, But people freely give. You see how he puts it? Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. So the evidence is that that Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is that the Lord sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies, and his people will offer themselves willingly. Now look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. Because what you have in verses 1 to 3 is his, is his heavenly enthronement. And what you have in verse 4 is his eternal priesthood. Because here's the amazing thing is that Jesus as king, sitting at God's right hand, ruling, is also a priest in verse 4. The Lord has sworn will not change his mind, verse 4 You are a priest forever. So here is a king who is also a priest. Now in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament times, you were not permitted to combine those two offices. You're either a king or you're a priest. But you couldn't be both. You had to have both. But they were not in one person. There was the king and there was the priest. The the king of Israel went to fight for you. He defended his people. But the priest of Israel went to pray for you. And he would intercede for his people. So you had these two. And uh, you have an example where in the very first king named Saul... He decided he was going to be both a king and a priest. Well, I can't hardly blame him because in first, the story is in 1 Samuel 13. And he has led several thousand Israelites against the Philistines who had, this First Samuel 13, 5, 30,000 chariots. And he's got like three or 4,000 men. And they had 30,000 chariots, not even counting their soldiers on the ground. So he is going to fight for the people of Israel. But he needs the priest to come and pray. Samuel's the priest. So he gets, Samuel, you got to meet me here at this place at this time. Pray for us so we will then go fight. We have to have God's blessing on this. 
And so the day came when Samuel, the priest, was supposed to meet with Saul, the king, and the priest is late. He's not there. And the soldiers of Saul are beginning to run away, scatter, because they see all these chariots and thousands and tens of thousands of Philistines. So it says that Saul, impatient that the priest was not there, said, bring me the sacrifice. And they brought him the sacrifice. And he made his own sacrifice to God. Then Samuel shows up. And here's what Samuel says. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Saul, here's the first king of Israel. He says, you have done foolishly. And now your kingdom will not continue. And he didn't. Both him and his sons died in the battle. So the idea that a king could also be a priest was foreign. But here is one who sits on the throne and is a priest as well. Now, Zechariah the prophet predicted that the Messiah, one day the Messiah would come. And here's what it says, Zechariah 6.12. Behold the man whose name is the branch. He will branch out and build the temple of the Lord. And he will sit and rule on his throne and be a priest on his throne. What a statement. A priest on his throne. They never heard of such a thing. And he says, and the priesthood and the kingship will coexist in perfect harmony. They can come together under the Messiah. So when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords, he's also in that position a priest of the Most High God. He not only fights for us, he prays for us. And he has combined in one one person both offices. There are reasons we believe, and many Jews in the first century believed, that Jesus of Nazareth was also the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. This is one of them. Is that he obviously combined the offices in one as the prophets predicted. Now look at Psalm 110, verse 4 once again. He says, The Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever uh, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek or Melchizedek. You pronounce it the way you want to. I'll pronounce it the way I want to. And we'll go from there. Let me, who is Melchizedek? Well, (laughs) um, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Genesis chapter 14. Because there are two priesthoods in the Old Testament. The priesthood of Melchizedek, which is first. And then there's a priesthood later, about four or five hundred years under Moses, later. In the book of Exodus, it set up priesthood of Aaron, of the tabernacle and the old covenant. Now, Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. Aaron starts in Exodus. So Melchizedek is way behind. He's first by several hundred years. 
So what is this priesthood of Melchizedek? To, to understand Psalm 110, let's see what this looks like. In Genesis 14, is the story of Abraham. He has gone to rescue his nephew named Lot, who has been kidnapped. He defeats those who had kidnapped him and captured him. And he brings back Lot and the other women and children and their possessions. And as Abraham is returning from the battle with all these spoils of war, suddenly there's this uh, obscure person just shows up. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, which is the Old Testament word for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And notice verse 18 again. Melchizedek, king of Salem, was a priest. See, he's got the two offices in one. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all. Now, here's two or three verses just sandwiched in between Abraham's victory. The whole chapter is about Abraham's victory over these kings and his rescuing Lot. What does it say about Melchizedek? I'm going to summarize what it says about Melchizedek here. One, obviously, and this is how he resembles Jesus Christ. How do it? Here's the things you need to know. He's a king and a priest at the same time. Now that's different from the law of Moses that about four or five hundred years later you could only be a king or you could be a priest. You couldn't be both. But here he's both a king and a priest. Number two, notice he comes to Abraham. He leaves Jerusalem, Salem, comes to Abraham where but Uh, in the Old Covenant, you had to go to Jerusalem, make your sacrifice. And I might just add, see, he's he's picturing Jesus, uh, Jesus' priesthood for us here. How do we become a Christian? Do we go to Jerusalem, take a sacrifice to Jerusalem? No, Jesus comes to us. He came to us. He initiates the saving work of grace in our life. We're just going down our path. We're enjoying our blessings, and Jesus shows up. He comes to us. And notice also, he brought bread and wine. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This amazing Genesis 14 is Holy Communion. Here in the book of Genesis, representing the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And he brought these elements of the Lord's Supper to Abraham. What an amazing thing. And so he comes and he presents to Abraham the symbols of the sacrifice of Christ. Not our sacrifice brought to him, His sacrifice brought to us. 
A fourth thing is Abraham recognized the legitimacy and necessity of this priesthood because what did he do? Verse 20, Blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand and Abraham supported his priesthood by giving him a tithe. And, and let me just say a couple of things here. Um, when you tithe, when you give a tenth, you are not keeping the law, which says do this and you'll be blessed, but rather notice Abraham has already been blessed. He's coming from victory. And he has blessing. Verse 19, he, Melchizedek, blessed him. Then he gave him the tithe. So this is not legal mosaic requirement where you give your tithe and then God blesses you. If you don't tithe, you'll have a flat tire on the way home or something like that. Rather, you come through the week, you're blessed by God, you're praising Him, you're thankful, and what do you do? You say, Lord, I recognize your priesthood, your prayers on my behalf, your intercession for me caused me to be victorious. I thank you, and here is a tenth to support your work and acknowledge the validity and necessity of your work on my behalf. Hallelujah! There's nothing wrong with that. You say, well, I don't want to tithe. Okay, don't. But there are some people who want to express their heartfelt praise to the Lord Jesus Christ for all that He's done for them. I don't promise you a curse if you don't tithe. (laughs) Amen. Um, Well, I did wax a little eloquent on that point, I can see. But uh, I think Abraham gives us a wonderful example here even before the law was introduced. Uh, And this leads me to the fifth point, and that is it precedes the law. Those who come first have precedence. Even in the court system, if if there's a legal ruling, it often precedes or has precedence over anything that follows. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I was here first? See, that's precedence. And so Melchizedek was here before Moses and Aaron. So he has precedence. And then the sixth thing is he's not a Levite. Now, all the priests under Moses and under the Old Covenant had to be Levitical. They had to be from Levi. Aaron was a Levite. If you weren't a Levite, you couldn't be a priest. Melchizedek is not a Levite. In fact, Hebrews 7 says that he didn't even have a genealogy. You can't even find a genealogy. He's he's like the Son of God in that he comes out of nowhere. You don't know where he's from, who his parents were. You don't even know where he goes to, except Jerusalem. What happened to him? He seems to be one with an endless life. And and so he says, uh, the, the priest of Psalm 110, the king who will be the priest, is also from the from the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. Now, Jesus is not a Levite, so how can he be a priest? 
Well, he's not one according to the Old Covenant. He's not one according to the tribe of Aaron. He's not one according to the Levitical priesthood. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then one other thing. This priesthood of Melchizedek is distinct from the Mosaic priest, the Aaron priest, and the Levitical priest, because this priest has a promise or an oath. I want to read Psalm 110, verse 4, once again. The Lord has sworn. He has sworn. He will not change. Psalm 110, verse 4. You, that is Adonai, at his right hand, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now get this. The priest of the old covenant under Moses and Aaron never had an oath. They were called, but they were not. God never swore their priesthood would be forever. But the order of Melchizedek has an oath. I want to read this to you from the book of Hebrews. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 7. And let me show you this. Hebrews, I'll just turn over here and read it to you. It's Hebrews chapter 7. He says in verse 18, On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. Hebrews seven nineteen. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Hebrews seven twenty. It was not without an oath. For those who were formerly priests, the Levites, were were made such without an oath. But this one, Hebrews seven twenty one, was made a priest with an oath. And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the Melchizedek priesthood has something no other priestly order had in the Old Testament. An oath from God that it would always stand. In other words, Jesus is our high priest, not according to the law, but according to the Melchizedek order. And that priesthood is going to be here forever. And God's never going to go back to a sacrificial system where Aaron is the priest or the Levites are the priest. And today, they make a big deal, some of of the Jewish people, out of the last name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. Because it's the word for priest in Hebrew. And so if you're a Cohen, you're somewhat... But I got news for all the Cohens and the Cones and those who would exalt the Jewish genetic ancestry. And that is that God has swore an oath. He is never going back to temple Judaism. He is staying with Jesus, our high priest, the Melchizedek order, forever. Now there are two reasons that's important. I'll close with this. One... This priesthood of Melchizedek is powerful. He's at the right hand of God. This priesthood 
is what you need to make it. Okay? Here's what he told Peter. See, this is Jesus praying for us, our king and our priest. He told Peter, Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. <laughs> that would send a, sh- a chill through my back, wouldn't it, yours? Satan wants you. Ugh. And he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And the, word, the Greek word is literally eclipsed. Blocked out entirely. I have prayed my priestly intercession on your behalf secures your faith for the future. And he says, when you have turned again, when, not if, but when you have turned again, because the Father always answers the, son, the prayers of the Son. Then Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you unto death. I will never deny you. And Jesus said, before the sun goes down, you will deny me three times. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew Peter's sins before he committed them. Amen? He knew. He knew how many they were. And he prayed for him even though Peter himself didn't know how weak he was. I will never deny you. Oh, yes, you will, but I've already got it covered in my priestly prayer. Some years ago, we had a a church of God at our building on Bristol Road um, that met in the afternoon on a Sunday, and then we had a Catholic school on a Monday through Friday. So we were like Baptist Sunday morning, Church of God Sunday evening, Catholics Monday. We were ecumenical. And uh, <clears throat> the guy, at the, the principal of the Catholic school was a great friend and, and uh, I really admired him. He was like tall, muscular, handsome, always dressed, really sharp, and I always admired him, and, I, and I'd talk to him. And one day he come in, and he was uh, on crutches, and his his right leg was was in cast. I said, hey, "Man, what happened to you?" He said, "Well, I was coming down the steps. Those of y'all who've been to Bristol Road know how there's steps that go down uh, from Fellowship Hall down to the sanctuary." I said, "Man." You fail? And he said, yeah, and I broke my leg. And I said to him, I said, you know what? I have been pastor here for years. I have never fallen on those steps. And I said, do you know why? I said, it's because I hold. Ah, okay, great. Well, I have a weak leg, so I have to hold to things when I go up and down. A few weeks later, I was at the fitness center up here. I was just visiting. I wasn't actually doing anything. (laughs) I just wanted to see. No, actually, I was trying to, I thought, I want to look like this guy. But, um, and and so, you know, it worked. (laughs) Okay, it's way too much laughter from my comfort zone. Uh, But 
uh, I was there and I was stretching and I had one leg up and I, to just kind of stretch out, limber up. But I was holding because I always hold. And as I was stretching, I leaned back and I lost my grip. And I fell backward right on my ankle and broke it in three places. So, <laughs> so the next time the, uh, the guy at the Catholic school saw me, he was on crutches. I was in a wheelchair. <laughs> he, he said, man, what happened to you? I said, I fail. He said, I thought you hold all the time. He said, I, and I said, I, don't, I didn't realize how weak is my grip. See, this is what Peter's problem was. Lord, I will never, I will never deny you. I'm ready to go unto death. Some people are like the principal and they're strong and they don't feel weak. But there's another level that was like me. I feel, because I have a weak leg, I feel my weakness so I always hold. There's a third level. It's when you recognize that your grip on God is not sufficient to get you through. It must be His grip on you. That gets you through. It's not your prayers. I, do, I commend prayer. Your prayers will not get you there. His prayers on your behalf will get you there. His intercession. He's a king who fights for us and he's a king who prays for us. A priest who prays for us. So the one thing I want to tell you is, based on the Melchizedek order, king and a priest, powerful at the right hand of God, that's what you need. It's a powerful priesthood. One other quick point. It's a permanent priesthood. That's the summary. Because... It's not a king-priest who is for us today but not tomorrow. No, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 5, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. He will be as strong on your behalf tomorrow as He is today. And His priesthood will go through eternity. Eternity. I have taken an oath, God said. I have, the Lord has sworn, Jehovah has sworn, He will not change His mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it's not only powerful, but permanent. I'll give you one final verse. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were always dying. So they had all these priests, 7,000 of them in the time of first century, time of Jesus. 7,000 priests, somebody said. Because they were always being preceded by death from continuing in office. They would always die. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Therefore, consequently, he is able to save um, he is able to save. You see that word save in verse 25? In the Greek text, that is what's called a continual tense. He's able to continually save 
to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. It's permanent. It's permanent. It's the basis of our security in God in our walk with him. So we praise him today not only for his powerful priesthood but for his permanent one as well. We're going to pick up Psalm 110 next week, continue and, and hopefully finish that. The title uh, of next Sunday's message is this, Are We in the Last Days? Based on Psalm 110, what can we say about it? He's at the Father's right hand till his enemies are made a footstool. He's there as a priest. But read the rest of Psalm 110 for next Sunday morning. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray as we meditate on your holy word that you will open our eyes, that you will open our hearts, and that we will see something of the beauty and the glory and the majesty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.